0: If, you're, if you bump into an IRS agent at Starbucks, you would not probably say to him, hey, man, I appreciate your job. Keep it up. Let me buy you a cup. I appreciate the work that you do, right? There's just something about paying taxes and those who represent uh, taking money from us that we just we don't like. We, we resent it. And that was his profession. An unpopular man was Zacchaeus. But adding insult to injury, it wasn't just the fact that he took taxes. Now, in, in in this age, historically, if you dig into this, you will see, you'll learn that there were a few uh, cities that were big. They were part of this uh, tax district that Zacchaeus oversaw. Uh, Capernaum was one of them. Jericho, that, that's mentioned here, was probably the chief among them. And it was a, a big trade port between Egypt and Damascus and goods that were sold by by the Romans were taxed very heavily. And you see Zacchaeus was a Jewish man but he collected money from his own people to give to the government of Rome. And it was corrupt. He was a sellout. He was planning the financial demise of his own people. Taking money from his own people's pockets to give to the corrupt Roman government. Now you see Zacchaeus' level of, unpopular, of popularity uh, plummets, doesn't it? He's not only unpopular, he's probably unethical. There wasn't an ethics class at uh, Tax Collector University. No class like that. The government's message to all their collectors was, go get the money. Whatever means necessary, collect. And that was his role, uh, Tax collectors were known by the populace as sinners. It was just synonymous. A tax collector is a sinful person. But this man we see in the story, unpopular, unethical, was also undeterred. It tells us that he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wasn't sure. He wasn't sure. He wanted to get a glimpse of this man. And for obvious reasons, his short stature, Zacchaeus is a guy that obviously wouldn't be drafted by the the Heat or the Pacers or the Thunder or the Spurs, wouldn't be playing in the NBA. But he runs, and a Jewish man, a wealthy Jewish man, would, would probably be wearing a robe, and he would have to hike that robe. You guys are saying, man, I'm not a robe. I wouldn't be wearing a robe. But they did. That's what they did in this culture. Zacchaeus probably hiked his robe in order to run fast. It was, not a, it was not a thing of dignity. He hikes his robe, runs fast, and climbs up into a tree. Let me ask you. Most of the kids are out of the room. When was the last time you climbed up into a tree? Let's say you were driving home in your neighborhood and you look up in a tree, and there you see a neighbor. You roll down your window, and you say, hey, neighbor, what are you doing up in that tree? And let's just pretend that neighbor says, I don't know. You would think, that's weird, man. Like, hide your wife, hide your kids, right? I mean, that's weird that, that he would be up there. Now, deer, deer hunters notwithstanding, right? But here's this man in a tree, an undignified move. He was undeterred in the sense he was focused. He wanted to get a picture to see who Jesus was. Now some of us in this room, some of us that's a very comforting thought. That Jesus would leave the popular, he would leave the populace. He would work his way through the crowd, he would go out of his way to see a sinful person who had done a lot that he was ashamed of. Because you're an outcast. You've been there. You you feel that this morning. It's a weight that you carry if people knew about me or some people, they do know about me and I'm not welcome here. I would never connect to a small group. I would never get in a circle with church people because they know some things about me, And for you this morning, it's great comfort, a simple story of Jesus, our Savior, going out of his way to be with an outcast. And for some of us, let me say, this is troubling to you. This guy was among the worst of the worst. He pillaged and plundered his own people. He, he lived a life of greed. He, he made money and abused that. He got money the dishonest way. And here is Jesus choosing out of all the people, just uh, think with me, if you will, about all those other people that Jesus walked past to go to be with this one. You see, we've said it before. I I quote from a black spiritual song and preacher when I say this, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Sin is a a part of all of us. Peter would say, there's this passage in one of the epistles where he says my dear friends as aliens and strangers in the world abstain from sinful desires that listen that wage war against your soul everybody everybody's in this battle all of us we want to look good in front of other people but we want to do whatever we can to move away from pain and to seek gain. And that's, there's this, these warring factions that exist within us. These evil desires that wage within. And Peter is saying, hey, dear friends, aliens and strangers. In other words, there's going to be a lot when you start following Jesus. When the church comes together, you are going to, you're going to feel very different than the world in which you live. Because you're aliens and strangers. And listen, don't, don't lose sight of this. Jesus ought to be changing your life. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your souls. Now soul for us in our day is sort of a soft word, isn't it? We, we think of candle lighting, hush puppy wearing, herbal tea, kind of conflict avoiding granola crunchers when it comes to a soul. But this is a powerful war type metaphor that Peter says to the church, that sin is waging war against your soul. Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. The soul is that deep part of you that is called to worship. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? The soul was the part of you that sinks into depression. As the deer pants for the water, O oh my soul, longs for you the soul represents the desperate part of you jesus said what does man gain what 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 would he forfeit to lose his own soul what in this world would he forfeit for his soul that it's the the deepest part of you it's the part of you that worships the part of you that gets depressed and sad and downcast it's the part of you that longs, sometimes longs horribly for something or someone It's the part of you that you have to think about. What am I really, really living my life for? And Peter says this sin, I could only imagine what it was like for Zacchaeus to say, hey, I've been doing this because I forfeited. I've been living only for this world and the material world. Be careful with the sin that rages within you. It wages war against your very soul. We use that, the expression spiritual warfare, kind of loosely in our day. Oh, it's a, it's a very important reality in our lives. Ephesians 6, Paul told the church at Ephesus, man, gird up every day. Put on the whole armor of God. You and I need to because we're in a spiritual battle. Uh, one couple in our church, Scott and Deborah White, they're with Fondren Church right now in Cambodia. A few of us are going in just a few weeks. And I've heard from them already, and they said, Robert, it is dark over here. The spiritual battle is pervasive. There is poverty and children in poverty. It, it just breaks your heart what we're seeing here. Spiritual battle is very real, but sometimes we, we throw it around kind of loosely. I remember not long ago, I, I drove to a speaking engagement, I barely got there on time, I had a flat. And I remember the, the person miking me up, said, whew, man, spiritual warfare. And I thought, you know, maybe, maybe he's right, maybe that was indicative of spiritual warfare. But I began to think if I was a demon man, I would go for like the ignition system or the transmission, you know, or something like that because I meant the flat is the only thing I know how to fix on a car, right? It's the only thing. but. You and I were in this battle. We're, we're in this spiritual battle. And for you and I, sin is an ever-present reality. What was the difference between this unpopular, unethical, undeterred, very desperate, short man who wanted to see who Jesus was, who took a an extreme view, who kind of gave up his dignity, hiked his robe, ran fast, jumped up a tree. What's the difference in that man? And the crowd all around Jesus. What was Jesus' first message when he appeared? Think about it. If you had to put it in a word. Do you know what I'm getting at? Jesus appeared and he said, He said, repent. He said, repent. What what do we do? What do you do? The preacher, the preacher's got sin. Topher prayed, I'm the chief among sinners. I kind of believe that's true about Topher, but he's actually quoting from Paul. This is a trustworthy statement, and it's worthy of all acceptance, Paul said, that I am the chief sinners among all. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Was he saying, uh, oddly, that he had done a, a study of the history of all humanity and compared sins and put it in some grid and realized that he was the worst? No, what Paul is saying is when you get close to Jesus, You see sin as he sees sin. And repentance isn't a worm theology feeling low and bad about yourself. Repentance is not merely avoiding punishment. Repentance is a desire for intimacy. The word repent has been hijacked. It's been given a bad name. If you stroll around some college campuses or some public squares... There's a a decent chance these days that you'll be virtually attacked by a religious group. They're loud and they'll have a bullhorn and a cardboard sign and they'll scream out, repent, repent. And when that happened to me, my freshman year of college, I didn't want to repent. I didn't want what they had. I wanted the opposite of what they had. But repentance is when we, like Zacchaeus, we encounter Jesus. We then change our minds. About our life, about about sin, for Zacchaeus, it was his greed. He, he sees it, and when he encounters Jesus, he's already what he's already talking about what he wants to see changed in his life. Tony Campolo is a professor, pastor, pretty famous Christian author. He tells about the time that he went to speak at a Pentecostal college. He was going to be speaking before a pretty large group, and before he was uh, set to speak. They had him slated to be prayed over, to be prayed for. I mean, these are Pentecostals, right? So they laid hands on Tony, he he says. And one man in particular, he remembers, was beginning to pray for him. And the hour was nigh. It was about time for him to be on. He could already hear the worship. And he knew he was up. And uh, they were in this room, this adjacent room. And this one man in particular was praying out loud. And he began to pray for other people. He said, Lord, I pray for Charlie Stolfitz. Tony Campolo rolling his eyes, thinking, Who is Charlie? Who's this guy, Charlie? And why is he praying for him? And he, this man prayed, I pray for Charlie Stolfus. I pray for him today, Lord. I, Lord, you know him. He's the man that lives in that silver trailer about a mile from the church on the right hand side. And Tony Campolo is thinking, Oh, Lord, God doesn't need to hear where this man lives. And I, I, I pray for him. I pray for him, Lord, because as you know, He left his wife and his kids this morning. And I pray that you do something in his life, that you intervene in his life, Lord, and that you allow him to repent and you save his home and you save his marriage. Campolo says he got up from that prayer time. He gave his message. He got up to go out to his car. He begins to drive down the road and he sees a man on the side of the road hitchhiking. He opens the door and lets him in. He says, I'm Tony. You know, this is... You know know where this is going, right? The man says, I'm Charlie. Tells him his last name. About a half a mile down the road, Tony stops and turns around. Charlie says, what are you doing? Where are we going? Where where are you taking me? He says, I'm taking you home. Because you left your wife and kids. Charlie was shocked. A little bit down the road, silver trailer on the right, a little bit past the church, Tony pulls in with Charlie. He says, How did you, how did you know? Tony said, God told me. <laughs> he walks inside, Tony goes in with Charlie and with his wife, and they, they talk for a long, long time. He prays for them. He helps get them into marriage counseling that, was, that took many, many months, and to this day, Charlie is married and a father to those kids and a pastor. And you would be too if that happened to you. (laughs) Repentance is turning around. It's a life, church listen, it's a life of freedom. In that movie, Christmas Story, a kid is double dog dare to touch his tongue on a frozen flagpole. And he puts it on that icy metal and it just sticks there. He's stuck. And he can break free with an enormous amount of pain. In church, I want us to preach it because it's true. Repentance. And turning a life around can involve some pain. Because the truth sets us free, but at first it can make us miserable. Now when we think of freedom that Jesus preached about in John 8, the truth will set you free. Zacchaeus found it, have you? Are you living and walking in truth or is your life more characterized by deception, even hollow empty religion? Have you done anything to show that you don't care what other people think, that dignity is not that important? You want to go out of your way to see who Jesus really is. Beyond conventional categories, beyond all that you've known or heard about. When he's in that tree, I imagine, when He called, when Jesus calls his name, in my mind, I have a picture of Zacchaeus turning and looking at the other branches and realizing he's the only one. He gets down, and Jesus, it says, man, they gather joyfully. That's the freedom that he gives joyful freedom. Man, we live in. We just do. We live and we swim in the waters of the American church. And the American church is so concerned about church and attendance and the buildings and the cash and all those very measurable things. But how do you measure your joy? How do you measure your freedom quotient? You see, we, we have some bad misnomers about freedom. There's a couple of different flavors of freedom. One I like to call freedom from. Freedom from repression and rules. I don't have to do that. When Susan and I were, uh, well, it was early in our marriage, and we would be uh, reading right before bedtime, and she would uh, turn toward the lamp to turn it off. And there were times when I would, uh, right when she was about to reach for it, I would say, hey, I command you to turn that lamp on, off right now. You must obey me. And, of course, her hand was up in there reaching for that lamp, but she would just bring it back, right? And sometimes the lamp would stay on all night. Terrible about her, isn't it? Terrible quality, so stubborn, not, not wanting to be bossed around. You're not the boss of me. There's a freedom from being, uh, being enslaved by somebody. You are not the boss of me. I can do what I want. You, you tell me I shouldn't drink. Well, I, I, if I want to drink, I will drink. You're not the boss of me. But before you know it, you drink and you drink and you're having a drink at three o'clock and nobody says anything to you. And in no time, that freedom turns into enslavement. Damages your marriage. Embarrasses your kids. hurts your health. Threatens your job. You're free to drink, but apparently you're not free to be sober. Are you free? There's freedom from, but there's a freedom to. And this freedom is the freedom that Jesus invites us to, and that's the freedom to be the person that He's made you to be, to walk in that, to experience that. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, there's a boy named Eustace who is invited by Aslan, who's the Christ figure. And Eustace is a dragon boy. He's a boy who turned into a dragon. And he's got hard, ugly, scaly skin. And that dragon, that dragon is a picture of how sin dehumanizes us. And he's invited by Aslan to come to the pool, to to swim and to experience a health, a wholeness, and a cleansing. But first, he's told, this boy is told, you must undress. An odd request, he thought, until he again looks at his hard, ugly, dry, scaly dragon skin. And he begins to peel off the layers. And it was hard, and it hurt, and it took a long, long time. And he peeled, and he peeled, and he walked toward the pool. And as he placed his foot down to go into the water, he noticed his foot was, it looked just like it had. And he, he, he sees his body. It was just like it had been. And Aslan invites the boy to lay down. It's an invitation to rest let me do this and Aslan himself begins to undress the dragon boy to take these hard ugly scaly layers off and in this work of C.S. Lewis the boy is is saying it hurts it hurts very badly and when he gets up there's a tenderness and Aslan Slings him toward the pool. And when he enters into the water, he hurts all the more. But in a matter of moments, he begins to swim. He begins to splash around. And he begins to realize that he's who he's created to be. In verse 7, would you look down as we close? And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Circle the word they. Because that might be the most disturbing word in these ten verses. They. They. They grumbled. They had a problem with it. They had a different opinion. They, they, they. Henry Cloud says there are only two kinds of communities. One is a community of people who look better, but they get worse. There's another kind of community of people who look worse, but they get better. And the work that Jesus wants to do in us is to meet us in our undignified places. If we're desiring to to give ourselves to him and to be that kind of community, a kind of community that together we won't try to do our work, we won't try to do cosmetic changes, We'll let Jesus do a deeper work because there's a lot of layers. Have you noticed? There's a lot of layers. Look at the person next to you that you have trouble with sometimes and say, man, there are a lot of layers to your life. There are a lot of layers. And are we willing, are we willing as a community to look worse in order to get better? Are we willing to do what it takes to let Jesus do his work in us? This is not a little Sunday school story about a wee little man. This is a powerful invitation for you and I to see the Savior that we live with, that Savior that we serve, the Savior who wants to take what's hard and ugly and dry and scaly and dragon-like, dehumanizing about you and make you into somebody new. The truth about you is that you don't know the truth about you. Self-deception is a pretty powerful thing. If someone, if everybody's singing and someone sings off key, if someone comes up and they violate your physical space, if someone is emotionally clingy and they drain you, if someone is obnoxious, they're a name dropper. If someone is just hard to be around, who is the last person to know? The somebody. That's somebody. Have you noticed that? And there's something about us. It just, it's just easy for us. The truth about you is you don't know the truth about you. We're called to, to walk in truth and freedom. And we need each other. And we need each other to help us with our patterns of deceit. And our habits of deception. The walk of truth can be painful. But it's an invitation to a whole different kind of community. And this morning as we truly close... I have this vision that we would be the type of community that's willing to look worse in order to get better. Man, I pray. You've heard me say it before, but I pray that we have more outcasts. I pray that we have more people dealing with their stuff. Man, I pray that we're not, we don't acquiesce to the they. What will they think? But that we'll, And we'll realize the work that Jesus is going to do in us We can't do it ourselves. We try. We try to pull things off of us. But only he can do that work. And it's deep. And it can hurt. But are you willing? I pray for some of you, and I know there are a few. You're running from your past. You're ashamed of what you've done. And Jesus wants to free you of it. More and more, I can say I'm the chief of sinners. I'm telling you, this pastor sins a lot. My life is riddled with self-deception. And I want to walk in his freedom. I want to be in a community where if I need to get better, I might look a little worse. Because I'm asking for your help. And I'm asking for my Savior to give me a new heart. Would you pray? Lord, some of us, uh, for, well, really all of us, we've got a someday scenario. Someday I'm going to do this. Someday I'm going to be prayed for. Someday I'm going I'm to be baptized. Someday I'm going to enter into community. Someday I'm going to join this church. Someday I'm going to be serious about growing. Someday I'm going to confess. Someday I'm going to deal with some things that I haven't dealt with before. Lord, would you help us? Would you create that in our midst? Lord, would you create a church where more and more, where we, we step out, there's just more people. With every passing week and every passing month, no matter whether we grow or not, there's just more people stepping into community more people wanting to scale back and more of us, Lord, willing to do some of the undignified things to be known and to be blessed to let you get past the scaly things and into the tender heart issues. Lord, I pray against the wiles of the enemy. I pray against that work in our church. Lord, my walk, my own walk to freedom has hurt me many times to confess some of our sins, to be confronted, to to open up to patterns that don't fully, fully please you. But what a joy, Lord. What a joy to not hide. What a joy to be called down. To be invited in. And Jesus, when you do it, you do it big. You do it joyfully. In you we pray. In Jesus, Amen. Church, would you stand? And Susan and Gary and I are going to be down front. And we we haven't done this in a while with invitation and baby dedication, a lot of things. But we just want to reserve these few moments before we go to be a time of prayer. Uh, we'd love the opportunity to be able today to pray for you about any anything. There's some real needs. There's some real needs in our congregation. I'm, I've seen it this week. We'd love this to be an opportunity. As, uh, the three of us face you, and if there's someone next to you that you could pray for or pray with, let's just let's take a moment. At a minimum, we'll all sing to the Lord. But let's also, those who are compelled, those who are called, let's let this be a time of prayer. For some of you, that's, it takes some courage to come down front, doesn't it? And what I would say to you today, straight from Luke 19, don't worry about the they. The they is no good. You be in this moment, and you be obedient. And uh, let us pray for you. There's power in it. There could be a need in your life, spiritual direction or decision. Let's honor God in this moment.